Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. December 28th, 1941. Dear Mother, I shipped two cardboard cartons of junk to you the day before yesterday. Don't unpack them. Just put them away for me and destroy them if I never get to claim them again. Love, hell. Here are members of the Madison Society. Harold Call, legal and moral sanctions are against them throughout their lives 
These people are unable to know and enjoy the benefits of family. He is unhappy. They are labeled security risk by our government. Neurotic. They are treated as undesirable in the armed forces. Torn by conflict. The homosexual is no different than anyone else. Inhibited in his social life. A pattern of behavior that is acceptable to society in general. You can't say that the homosexual, when he has these sanctions against him, is a person satisfied with his condition. He can often wind up in a very lonely and often dejected situation. In the matter scene, we are seeking acceptance of the homosexual in society. Homosexuals are not seeking to overthrow or destroy any of society's existing institutions, laws, or laws. Whether we approve of his type of conduct or not, the fact is he is in our midst and in large numbers. But Perhaps no one has asked the most basic and important question of all. Are homosexuals themselves satisfied with the way they are? I think we'd have to say they are not. Mattachine is a podcast dedicated to exploring the overlooked, forgotten, or often untold stories in gay history. I'm Devlin Camp. Nineteen forty-one, nine years before Mattachine, Hal Call is drafted into the army as a private. He had taken over his college theater newspaper, the Theater News, which he used to sell ads to pay his rent and have some extra cash. When Hal is drafted, he reluctantly stacks away his little print shop in the dressing room of a Missouri theater, and goes to war. Hal Call grew up in Missouri in the nineteen twenties with his Baptist mother. He played croquet on his front lawn. He dressed in drag for his school play. He read poetry. While Henry Gerber had begun organizing gay men in Chicago, and Harry Hay had just begun to discover his sexuality on the West Coast, Hal was a young boy writing his own fictional newspaper he called The Daily News. He didn't waste any time dating girls as he grew up, which only hurt his weak bond with his father and stepbrothers. His father's affairs with other women led to his parents' divorce when Hal was ten causing a permanent rift between the father and son. Hal would run off to the Grand River in the summertime with his friend Clifton. There was nothing to do in particular but get away from home. Hal and Clifton would sit near the river bottom on a railroad bridge and talk for hours. They would get naked, lay around. It was there, on that bridge, that Hal had a realization. He remembered finding a pamphlet in his dad's coat about the horrors of masturbation, Yet his father had no problem carrying on his affairs with other women. It seemed to Hal that many people were talking about things negatively that they were enjoying privately, so perhaps he and Clifton should also enjoy something they desired. Hal privately enjoyed what he desired all the way through college. When the war drafts young men out of their homes and into the world, They see new places and meet new people they never would have met otherwise. Sixteen million men go into service, including homosexuals, and suddenly they have a wider worldview. And at first, the military doesn't look into who may or may not be a sexual deviant, and young men at their highest sexual peak have access to explore their private interests in new cities with new people. 
December 6th, 1941. Hal Call is stationed in Los Angeles. He's hanging around the basement bar steps of the Biltmore Hotel, right off Pershing Square, when he makes eye contact with a young man. They walk into the densely shaded trees of the square together and hook up. Afterward, they hang around and chat. Phil is smart and smooth, and Hal finds he has a strong connection with him. Hal asks for his contact information, and history buffs know what happens next. The next morning, Pearl Harbor is attacked. Hal is sent to war. He writes to Phil, and Phil immediately writes back, starting a very consistent correspondence. Soon Hal has nicknamed Phil Birdie, and Birdie presses the idea of a post-war partnership. Hal thrives in the military. He becomes an officer. Of course, he has to suppress his sexual desires out of fear of being discharged. It might be nice to get out of the military, but the disgrace of being discharged for being a homosexual follows the soldier home. So Hal remains closeted, though he grows during his five years of service. And, like other men, he's hardened by it. July 6th, 1944. Dear Mother, I'm safe. I've seen 14 continuous days of hell. 14 nights of hell, fear and prayer on the battlefront here in Saipan Island. 14 frontline days without a let-up. No man who sees and knows it will ever forget it. Dead everywhere. Shells, snipers, and enemy machine gunners shooting at you. I can smell and feel death every minute. Rain, sun, land crabs, and giant snails all add to the misery of shells, dead Japs and the stench and destruction of the battlefield to make life dreary, dull, and yet keenly exciting. In their free time away from the battlegrounds, Hal and his friends go out, of course. They drink, they meet women. Hal pretends. Sometimes the men go off in separate rooms with women, and Hal is unable to perform. When he comes back out, naturally, he lies to his buddies and tells them how great the sex was. Back in his bed, he writes to Phil. The replies from Phil stack up, and Hal collects them in a package to be saved for him back home. Two cardboard cartons in just a few weeks. Mother, please destroy them if I never get to claim them. The military begins to place regulations on soldiers in order to curb homosexuality. Despite that effort, the military itself is a catalyst for gay life. Hal and Phil aren't the only men experiencing this awakening, of course. There are G.I. drag shows. There are men assigned to typing pools who go by feminine nicknames, sharing their secret. Gay publications circle, such as Myrtle Beach Bitch. Soldiers stationed in San Francisco cruise bars the military has designated off-limits, which essentially lets men know that these are the gay bars. As soldiers begin to get caught and sent home, Groups for homosexual soldiers, such as the Veterans Benevolent Association, bring gay veterans together to fight their blue discharges that deny them their benefits as vets. But it's just as Henry Gerber and his friends had hoped. The war makes way for the movement. Manuel Boyfrank, Gerber's pen pal from our episode one, continues writing to former contactors of Gerber's Contacts magazine. The time is ripe for a newsletter. If you've heard our previous seven episodes, you know he's clearly on to something. Meanwhile, future Mattachine co-founder 25-year-old Chuck Rowland and his boyfriend are in Minnesota trying to enlist to fight for their country. But Chuck is rejected due to his poor vision. Across the country in San Francisco, a teenage Jim Kepner opens his draft notice. 
he's immediately determined to declare himself as homosexual and get out of this war. Jim's created a science fantasy magazine, like the magazines and clubs we discussed in episode one, the genre serving as a sort of front to attract outsiders. Jim is hoping to grow his subscribers enough to create an entirely gay magazine. The time is ripe, I hear. Back across the sea, Hal and his troop are under fire, running up a hillside of sugarcane stalks. The sugarcane is burnt and sticking out at angles. The men weave through the stalks, carrying 25 pounds of weaponry on their backs. The Japanese soldiers fire relentlessly. Hal falls to catch his breath before a nearby grenade goes off. He catches a fragment in his hip. After five years of service, Captain Hal Call receives a Purple Heart and returns to the U.S. in 1945. Like Hal, most homosexual soldiers don't return to their hometowns and stagnant sex lives. Hal docks in Seattle in October and heads directly for Los Angeles to see Phil. Afterward, he returns briefly to Trenton, Missouri to complete his degree and reclaim what's left of his print shop in the theater dressing room. Phil comes to visit Hal at school, but gets incredibly sad about the new distance, despite how wonderfully he seems to fit into Hal's life. Hal promises to come to Phil by Christmas. I have counted the time until summer will shout out in full color, and maybe it won't be too long. As for a place to live next summer, I will have it all fixed up just the way we planned. Maybe not lavishly furnished, but good enough to call home in a bachelor sort of way. But Hal is taking journalism jobs. A nearby newspaper in Eldon offers him a job setting type. He pushes the move-in date with Phil again. The newspaper offers him a quarter interest in the paper, and he takes it. Hal rents a room in Eldon and drives back and forth from school to the Eldon Advertiser for work. Four years later. He's a journalist when he comes to visit Phil again. Phil is running his own interior design shop. After the visit, Phil writes to Hal that he had become used to his dull life. Then you arrived. There were three days of the same old gay life of the not-too-far-removed past, and then you were gone. I again became lost, lonesome, and dissatisfied. Hal drops his response in the mailbox, along with his other correspondence. Hal also writes to a friend upstate in Brookfield, codenamed Letter J in their letters. They discuss their romantic problems and issues adjusting after the war. Hal is conflicted about work and Bertie. His boss has returned his investment in the newspapers so he could take on bigger jobs now. Hal decides to use the money to buy the World Independent Newspaper in Walsenburg, Colorado, south of Denver. Soon, Hal's running the paper and he's active in the Chamber of Commerce. He attends events around town and builds up a reputation. With several events to attend, he's expected to arrive with a date. Hal takes Jackie, the daughter of a prominent family. Of course, dating leads to the possibility of marriage, and with Jackie, it's really an expectation. And rather than run his reputation and his newspaper into a professional disaster by outing himself, Hal gets engaged to Jackie. In this small town of like-minded citizens, Hal publishes their paper and needs no pseudonym to do it. He builds a life on his own name while the letters from Phil gather dust. He cruises when he has time, 
but there's rarely any touching in public flirtation. There's a sensation for Hal in standing close in a public bathroom, never making a move because police could be anywhere. Arrest would be certain to follow. He just chats sometimes. They feel each other out, give little secrets and admissions to one another. Then one of them might finally quietly say, I'm going home. He has his private groups of friends and lovers, writing letters and analyzing each other, asking each other the same questions Henry and Manuel wrote to each other in our episode one. The same questions Harry Hay asked Rudy. The same discussions to be spread by the groups run by Mattachine. But Hell has no idea this is going on. In Colorado, though his newspaper is successful, he's suddenly boxing up his letters from friends, never mentioning them to his co-workers, the Chamber of Commerce, the mayor, his mother, or his fiancée. Then I met Jack. One of those cruising spots is the Brown Palace Hotel in Denver, a city whose newspaper declares homosexuality at an all-time high. Hal meets Jack Firetag in the Brown Palace Hotel. It's more than cruising, though, because they quickly fall in love. On the weekends, Jack visits Hal discreetly in Walsenburg, and on weekdays, Hal is a respectable newspaper publisher publicly dating Jackie. I know, he's torn between Jack and Jackie, but that's the true story. Hal turns the world independent paper around in just two years. He enhances the local news coverage, cuts expenses, publishes a free Saturday edition, and raises subscription rates 20%. July, 1950. In LA, Harry Hay slides his document across the diner table to Rudy. The call, his call to action. In Walsenburg, Colorado, though I'm not sure what pushes him, Hal decides he's done improving their small-town paper. He's poured himself into his work and still feels he has no one and nowhere to come out to in Walsenburg. So, Hal sells his stake in the World Independent and breaks up with Jackie. In his final letter as the publisher, he writes, I must one day make some contribution to the journalistic profession, which in turn will score off the generosity you've shown me. As of this hour, I am more convinced than ever that newspaper work is my calling. Hal and Jack pack up their things and leave town. After briefly staying with Hal's parents in Missouri, Hal is soon working for the Kansas City Star while Jack works at a hotel. Once they're settled in, Hal's mother phones to check in. Honey, what is this between you and Jack? I saw you give a look at him. I never saw you look that way to anybody before. They came to fully embrace their relationship. It must have been noticeable. They've been reading gay novels such as James Barr's Quatrefoil and Truman Capote's Other Voices, Other Rooms. Hal receives a letter from his mother. Slipped inside is a bookmark that says, The wages of sin is death. He reads her letter. Now keep this to yourself, but Dad thinks something is radically wrong with you and your boyfriends. He wanted to talk with you personally, if, he said, you were to give him a chance without some boy hanging around. He didn't like Jack and said he never saw such a boy. Don't tell Dad or Arnold a thing, no matter what they think. This will go to the grave with me if I was you. Don't tell anyone else, and for goodness sake, don't write silly letters to boys and men. No matter what you think of them in any way, don't put it on paper. I didn't tell Dad a thing. 
he asked me a lot. He says, you and he are pals and he'll get it out of you. Well, dear son, if you'll take mother's advice, you won't confess a thing to him. Hal gets in his car and drives home to Trenton, enraged. He sits his mother down and tells her everything. His relationship with Jack, what homosexuality is, and that she's not the only mother experiencing this. He refused to give her a chance to cry. Shut up, straighten up, start reading and learn something about it. Then he sits his father down. I heard you tell jokes about queers and cocksuckers. Well, you've got one right here looking at you. And he's telling you right now that you're going to stop that kind of nonsense. You were running around with Ida. The two of you would fuck in bed if her husband wasn't home. If he was in the bed sound asleep, you'd fuck on the kitchen floor. He tells his father that one time he accidentally caught them. You were down there having a piece of ass. His father breaks down crying. He listens. And as far as Hal knows, his father will never tell another homosexual joke again. Hal's relationships are finally moving forward, and now his career is making progress again, too. Hal is promoted to the Kansas City Star's Chicago office on State and Adams. Jack gets a hotel job in Lincoln Park, while Hal looks over 800 nationwide ad accounts for the star. Hal is on the rise. But years later, in Randy Schultz's book, The Mayor of Castro Street, Schultz will write, Only when police chased Chicago advertising salesman Hal Call out of the Windy City in 1952 did San Francisco get its first permanent gay activist. Coming up in this episode, there will be some offensive terms that may be triggering for some of our listeners. Chicago's gay bars are scattered around the north side, near Lincoln Park. Over the next two years, Hal gets to know them. Some of those bars, such as Shoreline 7, pay off cops to leave them alone. In those bars, Hal will later write that gay men... Talked in a low voice with other noise and music going on. When we got acquainted with them, we got their names and addresses. They had other friends who they had made out with. We'd invite them over and would invite some of their friends, and you'd have eight or twelve people for a Friday or Saturday night drinking session. We had ice and mix, packs of beer, little booze and snacks. It'd begin around eight o'clock. We'd pull the shades and sit around, strip naked, roll up our clothes and shoes in a bundle. There'd be a free-for-all sex party with the radio playing popular music. Hal is at a bar around 1 a.m. on an August night in 1952. A couple guys offer him a ride. He's only about six blocks from home, but he's pretty drunk. And they are too, but he says yes. They get in the car and drive for a couple minutes. The guy pulls over near the Lincoln Park police station and turns off his headlights. The two men turn to Hal and begin to touch him. Advancing as Hal stumbles for the door handle, he knows, and they should know, it's bad form to hook up in a car, especially near a police station. And aside from all that, he'll later mention, the two are not his type. Two flashlights beam through the windows. A couple police officers order the queers out of the car. The three men get out, still fully dressed. The other passenger says Hal and the driver were trying to make a pass at him, but he's innocent. The driver and Hal look at each other, shocked. But it doesn't matter. The officers walk all three of them to the station. Much like Henry Gerber and Dale Jennings and countless other gay people over the centuries, Hal Call is booked with not much reason. He's taken to jail downtown and processed and released on bail in the morning. When he appears in court with his attorney... The judge tells Hal that the arresting officers were within their rights to arrest under the suspicious circumstance. But due to the lack of evidence, 
The case is dismissed. He borrows $800 from his mother to clear the charges. He spends $400 on an attorney and has to pay $200 to the judge and $200 to the arresting officers. Of course, they didn't have any evidence or anything, but that was corruption in Chicago. To borrow the money, Hal has to tell his mother everything, and he tells his boss at the Star. Hal doesn't know that to be accused is to be guilty, and Hal's boss presses him to resign. He doesn't want a homosexual working for the paper. If you fired all the homosexuals on the Star, you wouldn't get the newspaper out. But of course, he doesn't keep his job. Hal and Jack load up the Buick once again and drive away from the life they built for two years. They head to San Francisco to begin again. One year later. Hal attends Jerry Brissett's Mattachine meeting in Berkeley in our episode 5. He attends the two conventions and nabs a seat as chapter secretary in the Bay Area. Mattachine chapters are starting in New York, Chicago, Boston, Denver, and elsewhere, as Hal Call and the other assimilationist leaders of the organization take charge, ousting the former communists like Harry Hay from the organization those former communists created. Hal Call and his friends in San Francisco hang out at bars like the Black Cat. With hands, arms, and elbows on the bar at all times. We were always afraid a cop would come in and sweep the place out, as they did on some occasions. The new chairman of the Mattachine, Ken Burns, is spending his time working with legal and PR advisors, flying back and forth from San Diego to San Francisco. He's busy trying to be present for his local chapter's meetings, running the council, writing reports and newsletters, and planning Mattachine-sponsored drag shows. Chairman Burns is taking meetings and calls constantly. Calls such as one from an angry father prepared to call his postal authority because his very respectable boy is getting Mattachine material in the mail. Burns is also dealing with Mattachino David Finn's recent contact with the FBI. He's alerting all chapter leaders in the country to tell members not to speak with investigators, which raises more fear. Within weeks of the conventions, the San Diego discussion group collapses. Harry Hayes' design for the groups to be a place where homosexuals could lead well-adjusted lives suddenly seems to side with the medical opinion that they're sick, dealing with a disability. When Mattachine leaders begin to discourage talk of a conscious minority and ethical homosexual culture, many discussion groups dry up and go away. Also on the chairman's list of responsibilities for running the new Mattachine, hiring an attorney. Chairman Burns calls a heterosexual attorney named David Raven, recommended to him by Reverend Wallace de Ortega Maxi. David Raven is excited to work for the Mattachine because he thinks some of their pamphlets are straight out of civil rights literature. He collects a retainer of $50 per month and advises no one speak to the FBI without him present. He doesn't like their suggestion of a phone service for arrested homosexuals to get an attorney, though, and he suggests getting rid of the Mattachine's legal chapter altogether. If they want to integrate into society, he says, they should work within the law, not run a legal chapter working against the law. Raven says, if they're all being honest here, they'd admit they just want the cops to leave them alone and stop raiding their bars while they socialize with other homosexuals. The legal chapter's chairman shouts, We should fight this! Another member yells, We are being insulted by someone who knows nothing of the problems of the homosexual. Marilyn hasn't experienced the bar raids. I still believe it is a situation created by yourselves. Chairman Burns adds, Consider what the outside society feels towards us at this time. 
Pamphlets are quickly distributed to chapters. Homosexuals are not seeking to overthrow or destroy any of society's existing institutions, laws, or mores, but to be assimilated as constructive, valuable, and responsible citizens. Many members who agreed with the assimilationists before now wonder how homosexuals could assimilate into a society that doesn't legally allow them to exist as homosexuals. Every other Thursday night, the leadership gets together and inevitably ends up fighting. And between those meetings, they fight through long letters. What events should they sponsor? What strategies for change? Should we have membership dues? What kind of people should we seek to join the society? The busier Hal becomes as secretary, the further he and Jack grow apart in their third year and fourth city together. Jack is depressed, drinking quite a bit, and is laid off from work. He helps Hal with his paperwork as they drift apart over it. Hal has made good friends with David Finn and the Mattachine, though David Finn has a much more brash way of making his points. David had shouted at Jerry Brissett in council meetings, cooperated with the FBI, and wrote that Jerry's idea of the Mattachine was a great fellowship movement for unhappy, neurotic bar faggots. David Finn yelled at Jerry because he was worried about a former Foundation supporter trying to overhaul his power in the Bay Area. He cooperated with the FBI for the obvious anti-communist reasons, but as for his opinion of what Mattachine stands for and who they should let in, he went on to write, We only injure ourselves and can never be able to help the faggots who haven't two cents to their names, have such a limited vocabulary they can't understand me, and are hardly the sort of persons anyone would point out with pride. Jerry Brissett sees David Finn and Hal Call as conformist. Into this idea of getting money. Let's cut our hair. Let's get dressed up like straights. Chairman Burns tries to keep the Bay Cities together, writing to Jerry that anyone can work against the society. But the organization should be bigger than any individual. There doesn't seem to be anything that can make them agree. There's no unifying message among homosexuals yet. We weren't attuned to protesting, carrying signs, placards, appearing on courthouse steps. Back then, we didn't have gay flags and sex symbols and wouldn't have dared hold hands walking down the street. They don't even know what they're fighting for yet. Disputes over fees go unresolved for months. The council censors printed material. Jack Spicer, a Mattachine member and future poet of the San Francisco Renaissance, is livid about the lack of people of color represented in the meetings. The Constitution's rules remain incomplete, so there's no way to keep power in check, and supporters of the new council question whether they should still adhere to the council's requests or let their chapters break off separately and into the darkness. Chairman Ken Burns will later recall, They had never worked within an organization. They had no idea of compromise or how to get things done in an organization, aside from getting up and yelling. It was very frustrating. It was a mess. You couldn't get two queens to agree on anything. Jerry Brissett fights at a meeting for his group to be recognized, and Chairman Burns says Jerry's East Bay group goes unrepresented because their charter is not registered until the council gets their $5. Amidst that fighting, Martin Block resigns from his seat as publications chairman. The publication seat is passed around until the San Francisco chapter expresses an interest. Hal's chapter. So Chairman Burns gives publications chairman to former newspaper owner Hal Call. Of the many problems holding back the new Mattachine Society, the straight lawyer and the legal counsel, David Finn and the FBI, 
members questioning if homosexuality is sickness, how they should treat feminine gays, who they should let into meetings. All of these problems can be solved by answering one question. What are we fighting for? If that's the only question holding them back, then it seems to Hal Call that the best way to answer it and get everyone in sync is through the written word. Hal Call and his friend David Finn get together to write two documents for the Mattachine in order to help the society focus and move forward. The first is called Aims and Principles, all about education, integration, and social action. They explain in this pamphlet that they will educate the public on what a homosexual is, but homosexuals should also learn a pattern of behavior that is acceptable to society in general and compatible with recognized institutions. In short, no fems. They also explain gay integration into general society. Instead of attempting to withdraw into an invert society of their own. They want to begin the process of protecting jobs. The second document written by Hal and David is Nine Important Questions Answered. This document explains that the Mattachine is an organization of persons who are interested in the problems of the sex variant. Emphatically. Not an organization of homosexuals or one attempting to create a homosexual society. Basically, we're not Harry Hay or the Foundation. These are declared the official publications of the Mattachine Society and are quickly dispersed to all members. When Jim Kepner reads these, he sees it as Hal and David doing McCarthy's dirty work. He's not alone. People accuse the higher-ups of cooperating with law enforcement. Jim Kepner warns members, Our enemies are all those who would try to force their own conformity on us. Unlike Magnus Hirschfeld, Carl Ulrichs, Henry Gerber, Harry Hay, and many others, it seems the new Mattachine wants to get rid of the idea that the sex variant is unique, queer. The new leadership begins to police queer behavior at their events, worrying about swishing at their picnics and voting down drag shows, calling them detrimental to the organization. Hal Call isn't quite in agreement with this, but the council writes that anyone participating in this type of show would disqualify them as a member. It's a civil war on femininity and the male queer community. Membership declines. Berkeley and Oakland, usually standing with Jerry Brissett's opinions, dwindle to about a dozen members. Hal and David's side of the bay, San Francisco, has grown, though. At the next meeting, on August 6th, Hal suggests that Jerry's East Bay separate and have its own council. Everyone just says, fine. David Finn writes to Chairman Burns, This way, they made the split to be rid of us and can now rule as they wish, but they have almost no subjects. Labor Day weekend, 1953. Ken Burns comes to the Bay Area to meet with the council in Hal's apartment, where both sides fight over politics and organizing strategies. Chairman Burns is so fed up that he's ready to cut out the East Bay, and he feels the Bay is already doing it on its own, so it's done. The final culturalist chapter is cut off. Jerry Brissett and Jack Spicer fume out of the building to Jerry's car. Jerry is furious that this beacon of hope that he worked so hard to contact and to devote himself to now rejects him so wholeheartedly. Anyone who comes into the Mattachine Society with religious ideals or an artistic mentality seems to be shot down in favor of the politically slick. The very straight Brooks Brothers type. As they drive home across the bay, 
Jack Spicer says, You can take your cup of Mattachine and shove it. We need you and the kind of person you are. I have other fish to fry, and you do too, dearie. They are going to get nowhere. The following night, Jerry hosts a Berkeley and Oakland meeting to decide where to go from here on their own. Everyone seems ready to work as one combined chapter and to allow Jerry to run it. But Jack was right. Jerry meets a man he feels is his soulmate, and he writes one last letter, instructing the group to find a new leader. I have other things to do. And with that letter, Jerry Brissett is gone from the Mattachine Society once and for all. Jack Spicer will soon follow suit, and after he'll refuse to sign a loyalty oath for his employer at a university, he'll go to the East Coast and later publish his now-famous poetry novel, After Lorca. Other fish to fry, indeed. Soon, new leaders emerge in the East Bay. Jerry Mason and transgender activist Renee Lyle Darcy take the reins, steering the group back to the assimilationists. They send all the necessary paperwork to the Mattachine Council, strategize against red infiltration, and send in dues not only for their group, but enough to make up for any dues not paid by the East Bay in the past. The rules are clearly established, and what Mattachine is fighting for is clear to everyone. Assimilation for safety, but assimilation to a world that rejects queers. The documents published by Hal Call have brought the Mattachine together, albeit by weeding many of them out. But he believes it's worth it. He believes in what he wrote. Hal supports the organization he works for, and it supports him. Now, finally, his calling for newspaper work might align with his true identity. Hal Call finds himself in a new position of power, in an organization now more unified than ever. Next week on Mattachine. Stay tuned for a preview of next week's episode. Mattachine was created and hosted by me, Devlin Camp. Please share the show with your friends, whether they're gay, straight, asexual, or anywhere on the Kinsey scale. And rate and review the show on iTunes when you have a free second. It's a huge help to the show. You can find the sources for our show on our website, mattachinepod.com, along with other fun things I didn't have time to include today. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on the website, too. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mattachine Files. Our editorial advisor, and second only to me in a love for Dr. Fraser Crane, is Paul DeCicio. And thanks always to Albert Williams for advice. Voice actors for this episode were Faye Camp as Jean Call, Evan Camp as Amatachino, Henry Coates as Phil, Paul DeCicio as Jerry Brissett, Brian Huff as Chairman Ken Burns, Gage Kyle as Jim Kepner, John Roth as David Finn, Courtney Tesh as Marilyn Boopsy Rieger, Albert Williams as Jack Spicer, and my girl Dominic Caruso as Hal Call. As I mentioned, my granny, Faye Camp, voiced Hal's mom, Jean Call, in this episode, and my gramps, Steve Camp, voiced Harry Hay. Special thanks to them, not just for enthusiastically taking on roles the moment I asked them to, but for being the first two people in my family to welcome me out of the closet when I was 15. So it makes sense that they were thrilled to read Harry Hay's Mattachine Oath in episode two. We are sworn that no boy or girl approaching the maelstrom of deviation need make that crossing alone, afraid and in the dark ever again. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo and audio clips of Harry Hay are courtesy of One Archives at the USC Libraries. Audio clips from The Rejected, the first American documentary on homosexuality, are licensed by 13 Productions and WNET. The music for this episode were the songs Shamanistic, Night on the Docks, Industrial Cinematic, Comfortable Mystery, Cool Cats, Ghost Processional, Ossuary, Lasting Hope, Gypsy Shoegazer, 
Dame May, and The Complex, all by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. The permissions, licenses, and equipment for this show add up quickly. You can check out our Patreon campaign if you'd like to contribute to the production of this show. It's at patreon.com slash files. Contribute as little as $1 per episode to get private perks like photos through the research process, PDF transcripts of episodes, and other fun things on the way. If you're a school teacher, contact me on mattachinepod.com to receive transcripts of every episode along with our resources free of charge. Feel free to teach your students all the queer history you can. Thanks for listening. Here's what's coming. Next week on Mattachine. The TV show that made America gasp. I have always felt that it is possible for homosexuals not to be homosexuals 24 hours a day. Scared little people. Summer soldiers. We accept the fact that the fairy is one of us. It may be that they should be exhorted to modify their behavior in public so that they draw less attention. We know well the punishments for non-conformity. This delegate's presence endangers all of us. What can the police do about them? Am I, or have I ever been, a communist? In normal times, this would deserve no answer whatsoever. Today, it is different. Before long, this young man will develop into a professional blackmailer where the person being extorted will rebel and a serious assault or even a homicide may result. Report anything I hear against the MS and its activities. Is it fair to assume that one alone has the single magic key? The society is investigating the possibility of launching its own publication. The Mattachine's opposition will make their next move that night. For the first time anywhere, a courageous reporter dares to present right out loud a subject usually spoken about in whispers. You're appearing on tonight's Confidential File as a spokesman for the Mattachine Society, is that right? Yes. You're so masked right now. We, the members of blank. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. When you talk, it's it, it, it's it's true though. For some reason, like when you grow up and you are taught in school to act professional, there is something that is so like implemented in that, and and something that you pick up on that you genuinely, to your core, start to learn. And it's not even as if it's like like you're wanting it to contradict anything of who you are as a as a real person. Like it comes out sometimes. Yeah, you're, you're taught that. To sound professional is to sound masculine. Yeah. Like, those flowery features in your voice, they they want to cut that out because they disrespect women. They don't see women as professional. Let me get a glass of water. I'm really, okay. I'm